1: If you enjoy Slate Spoiler Specials, the best way to support our show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. It only costs $1 for your first month. It's $59 a year after that. And for that dollar, you get no ads on any Slate podcasts. Unlimited access to the Slate website, which means you will never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member. You'll get bonus segments or episodes on your favorite podcast, including Slow Burn, Amicus, the Political Gab Fest, the Culture Gab Fest, and much more. And, of course, you support our magazine and the journalism that we do at Slate. So if all that sounds good and you're interested in trying to join Slate Plus if you're not a member already, you would do that at Slate.com slash Spoiler Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Spoiler Plus to become a Slate Plus member. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead
0: people. Charlotte Green is people!
2: No, I am the father. Oh.
0: What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell!
1: Hello, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic. Welcome to another Slate spoiler special podcast. This week, we're going to be spoiling... Eternals, the new Marvel movie from Indie Darling and Oscar winner Chloe Zhao. Uh, this is the first Marvel movie I think I've spoiled in a while because I sort of got off the Marvel train, I don't know, somewhere somewhere post-Thanos' snap in, in that time frame. Uh, so I'm very happy to have with me two people who can help me reconstruct the extremely shaggy plot of this sprawling epic, nearly three hours long, two hours and 40 minutes. Joining me are Slate Senior Editor Sam Adams. Hey, Sam. Hello, Dana. And also by Slate editorial assistant, Nadira Goff. Hey, Nadira. Hey. Before we get into spoiling, I want to go around the table here, the virtual Zoom table that we're all at, and ask what you thought of the movie. Just, you know, in general, did you think that this was a worthy addition to the Marvel Universe? Uh, were you disappointed, et cetera? And Sam, I'll start with you.
2: Um I was excited for this movie both because um, Clo Zhao is sort of such an unusual choice for a Marvel film, even though they've been uh, sort of rating the the Sundance director lineup for a good number of years now. She just seemed with someone not only with a really distinctive style, but a style that was really at odds with kind of everything that the Marvel Cinematic Universe was about. And even when the first uh, reactions started to creep in on Twitter from people who saw the early screenings who normally just love everything that Marvel touches and seemed kind of shaky on this. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Like, there's finally a Marvel movie that, like, not everybody likes. But it turns out that I don't like it either. Um, It's not like a movie that I hate, but there's very little in it that I actually like. It's sort of big and sprawling without giving you a lot of return on that uh, investment and just kind of feels like a bit of a mess.
1: Yeah, I have to agree. I was really, really disappointed and my expectations for this movie were not high. I mean out to me just seems so so clearly not suited to this universe. And sure, the idea of bringing in someone who's a contemplative, kind of very introspective indie filmmaker into this universe is interesting. But ultimately, the demands of a global product like a Marvel movie are just so huge and so overwhelming that it seems really hard to find one's own voice as, a, as an auteur within that. What about you, Nadira? Did you have high expectations and were they met or not?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm... In somewhat of the same boat. I'm a big Marvel fan. I actually currently just finished rewatching the whole Infinity Saga. Um, So big Marvel fan. And I was excited to see this film, especially when I heard Chloe Zhao was directing it. Just really interested to see where it goes. And especially when I heard of the cast. I think, you know, as someone who's been watching Marvel films for a really long time, it is one of the most, if not the most diverse cast that a Marvel film has had. And that really excited me. But I, I just did not like this movie. (laughs) Um, There's, there's so much that I feel were missteps that could have been easily avoided, you know, things that didn't need to be pointed out that actually, when you really hone in on them, don't make any sense. Um, And if you just didn't point them out, I probably wouldn't hone in on them, you know, plot lines that just kind of seem to go nowhere performances that, sad to say, are not great um, from people that I really enjoy in other things. And, you know, just generally not even that fun. Like, I found myself to be bored for most of it. But there are things that we will get into that I do appreciate about the film. But overall, yeah, just not not my kind of Marvel film, I guess.
1: Just Just a very curiously dead in the water kind of atmosphere to me this movie never got any kind of spark of of energy or life which given the cast as you say nadira is kind of surprising because there's so many big personalities in there who don't get a chance to be big i've never seen angelina jolie seem so tamped down by a surrounding uh, framework as she is in this movie
2: yeah i think part of the problem for me is that like there are a lot of big personalities in the cast but they're not sort of playing the lead characters. And this seems to be maybe a bigger issue for this sort of new phase of of Marvel movies where they're trying to set up new characters based on characters who are not sort of as well known as, you know, Captain America and Iron Man and, and such. And I just, I feel like, Uh, Richard Madden and and Gemma Chan, who are sort of the the main characters in this movie, are just both uh, kind of like drips. Yeah. And they're really not interesting. I felt that way about Simulia and uh, Shang-Chi as well. Like, Aquafina's character in that movie was so great. Brian Tyree Henry's character in this movie and uh, Kumail Nanjiani's character and stuff are all really fun to watch. But we just keep going back to these really boring leads um, and I think that, like, drags the movie down.
1: Yeah, it is strange that this movie doesn't doesn't seem to know who its protagonist is. I mean, it's not unusual, of course, in a big, you know, Avengers-style giant cast movie that there's not going to be one protagonist. But, yeah, this movie doesn't seem to know who we want to watch. And who we want to watch, I think you're right, Sam, is basically Brian Tyree Henry as as Fastos. who, how, what would you call his superpower? He's the sort of technological guru of history, right? Yeah, he's
2: sort of like, you know, Hephaestus, the sort of forger god. So, yeah, so he makes things.
1: And he seems to have also have some sort of... It's almost as if he infuses humanity with his own um, knowledge about ne- technology. I think he's called a technopath. I'm not sure if that's in the movie or that's somewhere in the surrounding mythology that I read, but right. He is, he's sort of the, the, the technology whisperer of history. Um, and and then the other character who's really vivid and doesn't get enough focus or enough time is Kumail Nanjani's Kingo, who, who... How would you describe his superpower, Nadir? What is, what's Kingo do? He, he makes his hands
0: into flame Yeah, balls. he shoots... <laughs> energy from his hands, you know, which I think is, when you think about it, a, a lot of the Eternals are shooting energy from different limbs of their body. But... <laughs> which body
1: part do you shoot your energy
0: from? Right, That's exactly. big
1: question.
2: He, he's sort of like if Finger Guns was a superman.
0: <laughs> which I guess is perfectly fitting for Kumail Nanjiani, but I did wonder about Kingo. I mean, do any of you know where the name Kingo comes from? Because I don't.
2: I I think it's just... King plus O. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's really the best, the best I can come up with.
1: All right. So, to begin, I saw this movie probably a week and a half ago now, and already every detail of the uh, of the elaborate cosmological setup has completely fled my mind. And even reading the summaries online, I feel like maybe I didn't understand it in the first place. So, let's start with The Crawl. This movie has, you know, the classic comic book movie set up at the beginning with some text appearing about the origin of our heroes. And it seems unique to me among Marvel crawls in that, It all turns out later to be a lie, basically. It was my editor who pointed this out to me when I was trying to summarize for my review the backstory of the Eternals. And he said, yeah, but isn't everything that we're told in that opening scene of the movie later belied by twists and discoveries that come along in the plot? But before we get to those twists, can either one of you help me summarize that crawl at the beginning of the Eternals?
0: Sure. The long sprawling crawl at the beginning of the film basically lays out everything we think we know about the Eternals. They were created by Erisham, Prime Celestial, um the prime celestial who first created the sun and brought light into the universe um you know life began there was a balance all of that kind of thing he creates the eternals to fight the deviants. um, And that is their sole purpose, as we are told. Um, And they have an unyielding faith in Erisham until, as we're hinted at, Ajak, the prime eternal, who we will come to know as Salma Hayek in the film, decides that, you know, it just doesn't work for her. And so she changes everything. And that's kind of the gist of the beginning crawl. Right. So there's a kind of a theological setup that we're going to be put in place to um,
1: to tear down later on in the movie. And it's worth noting, and we'll note this as we get into all the names of the, the 10 heroes who are the Eternals, that... Everybody's name is basically a God name, slightly twisted, right? So Ereshem is sort of Hashem, one of the names for the for the Jewish God, right? And then each of the Eternals will either have like a, a misspelled classical name, like Icarus, Circe, etc., or something else that hints at some sort of religious affiliation. That becomes really important later in the movie because, I mean, this is, I would say, maybe the most Theologically concerned of Marvel movies that I've seen, you know, one that is interested in asking big questions about why the Eternals have been created, what their purpose is, and you know whether they should question that purpose at at any point in their history. So after the crawl has has falsely set us up to believe we're in this sort of theological setup that will that will lately be later be proven untrue, um, we start to meet the gang and the gang gets together via one of those classic heist movie, let's get the gang back together kind of scenarios, except that this time it's Intra-historical. I guess they haven't seen each other in several hundred years, the Eternals, right? Because they've all been living incognito as if they were mortals in different parts of the world. Since, as you said, Nadira, the only reason they were put on Earth is to fight this, This I don't know what you'd call them, this group of like CGI super beasts called the Deviants, um, they don't really interfere with human history. Um, we'll see a little bit later You know what roles they have played in some of the great atrocities of human history in some scenes that I think are in questionable taste, but we'll get to that. Um, but but essentially, they've been lying low all this time. while I suppose other superheroes are, are helping humans with their problems. The eternals are just kind of trying to keep a low profile. But they find themselves called once again to um to come together once the deviants start to burst back upon the earth. So maybe we should introduce those members of the group that we haven't yet talked about through this getting the gang back together kind of sequence, which takes up a good, I don't know, the first 20 minutes of the movie or so needs to be spent on character introduction. And even that only gives us two minutes per character, given that there's there's 10 of them. So the two drips who are in love that Sam talked about <laughs> earlier are um, Cersei and Icarus. They're played by respectively, Gemma Chan and Richard Madden. Um, they have been lovers in the past. I think they've even been lovers over centuries and centuries, it's implied, but have also been broken up for now some period of hundreds of years. So our main story, unfortunately, because it's one of the least interesting stories, is this you know romantic triangle among these two god, eternal creatures, and a mortal man, or at least apparently mortal man, played by Kit Harington, who is in love with Cersei. Um, So that's where we start off, in London, where Cersei is living undercover as a kind of antiquities professor. I'm not sure exactly what she does. She has one of those superhero jobs like Wonder <laughs> Woman's job in Wonder Woman 1984, right, where she dusts off old archaeological <laughs> artifacts. And Cersei gets tasked with leading the Eternals after Salma Hayek's Ajax, who has been the kind of maternal matriarchal force um, behind them all of these centuries, is killed by a deviant erupting from the earth. So after Ajax unexpected death. The Eternals all come together first to mourn and then to figure out how they're going to solve this this new problem. Nadira, do you want to introduce us to some more of this sprawling cast of characters around the earth?
0: Sure. So there's Makari, who is played by Lauren Ridloff, who I think her name is based on the god Mercury, who is one of my favorites. I know that we gave a shout out to Kumail Nanjiani as Kingo and Brian Tyree Henry as Fastos, but Makari is one of my favorites, along with Druig, who is played by Barry Kean. Don't really entirely know if his name is supposed to be based off of Druids or not, but that's the closest I could come to it. Druig, his power is mind control. Makari is very, very fast. We also meet Gilgamesh, who's played by Don Lee, who is, again, really strong and has hands that he can punch with energy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, he is in a relationship with Thina, no A, who's played by the Angelina Jolie. She's a warrior, an incredibly skilled warrior, as we know her to be. There's also Sprite, who's played by Leah McHugh. It takes us a minute to learn what Sprite's exact power is, and I don't even know how I would phrase it. She can change the appearance of things, including people and, apparently, at the end of the film, volcanoes.
2: Yeah, so basically the setup for the movie is the Eternals have been, you know, set on Earth to fight this race of sort of, I think of them as sort of like skinless dinosaurs called uh, Deviants. Basically beat the Deviants, they thought, 500 years ago and sort of split up and went their separate ways. But suddenly a Deviant is back. It has apparently killed Ajax and they're getting the gang back together to fight the Deviants again. Or Deviant, they don't even know how many of them are. And uh, the the Deviants, uh, it's some sort of new spin-off species of them, which is never really explained in the movie, but it's not... Not only killing Eternals, but is somehow siphoning their powers and sort of taking on consciousness, awareness in the process.
1: Since you mentioned the Deviants and the the whole villain structure, do you guys agree with me that the the villains in this movie are just so uninteresting that it's a huge part of what's what makes this movie hard to follow or care about i mean i feel like especially after the infinity stone whatever you call it the infinity saga series of the avengers we've been expecting more from our villains than this movie is willing to give us and i think it makes the whole movie feel very wan that there's no one character that they're fighting they're just these kind of beast-like minions who are non-verbal who have no apparent motivation other than to you know destroy eternals and uh and so those those fight scenes just really had no oomph or energy to me at all.
2: Yeah, I'm a little. I'm sympathetic to the problem that the movie is facing a little bit because uh, it is based on um, the comics by Jack Kirby. I think this is the first time that he's gotten sole credit. Up at the top of a Marvel movie. He's, you know, Stanley is sort of notorious for, you know, siphoning away credit from the people that he collaborated with. So Jack Kirby has been sort of credited as a co creator of many things. But I think this is the first sort of holy Jack Kirby movie in the Marvel universe. And especially on his own, once he broke away from Stanley, like Jack Kirby is just a giant like science fiction weirdo. So all the stuff in this movie that's sort of cringy or like over earnest, like the names of the characters and the fact that they're like engaged in this ancient battle with these, you know, weird looking lizard creatures called Deviants, like that's all straight out of the comics. And if you're going to do an Eternals movie, like you're sort of saddled with that and it doesn't really fit, you know, the the way that the MCU sort of likes to set up its conflict. So then eventually it turns into this whole thing involving the Eternals boss. And we eventually find out Creator, who's a Celestial called Arishem, you know, who's sort of even, even bigger, like sort of a giant robot looking creature floating in space, who's the size of like 12 planets. You know, this is not like Hawkeye shooting arrows at people or whatever. This is just sort of off the walls, crazy stuff. And I don't think the movie is crazy enough to really, really take that
1: in. Right. So really most of the conflict comes in this, uh, this more internal space that you described with, you know, them questioning their relationship to Arishem. And I think that, that that's really kind of the big other conceptual development in the plot. Is is this idea that they're going to turn against their master in a way? You know, there's there's a lot of chaos at the level of um, just motivation in this movie because they all start out as essentially loyal servants of Arishem, right? And then there's a kind of a crisis of faith in the middle of the movie when they start to realize that a bigger plan was at stake the entire time. Which, if I can reconstruct it correctly, has to do with. The Deviants actually having been planted on Earth on purpose in order to create enough chaos that the Earth can be this almost like seed, an emerging place for this other giant creature called Tiamut, who when he emerges will destroy the world, right? And so that is the moment that we start to realize that that crawl at the beginning was a big lie and that the Eternals have all been deployed in the service of something that they never agreed to or believed in in the first place.
2: Yeah, I mean, the the short version is that the Earth is just kind of like a big celestial egg. Um, that is going to be destroyed when this new celestial hatches, and the f- and the yolk for this egg is sort of human cognitive energy. So the Eternals and the and the Deviants are really just there to sort of provide conflict, because conflict is what causes a species to develop and the population to grow, basically to the point where there is enough are enough people thinking enough thoughts for this celestial to hatch inside the Earth and blow it to pieces. So then then this celestial can g- go on and create millions more planets billions more life forms but you know completely destroying uh humanity in the process
1: yeah it occurred to me with that with that storyline that there was a real missed opportunity to have a kind of climate change allegory there right because there's this whole thing going on with population in this movie and the idea that to overlay the the Avengers universe onto this one, that the moment that the blip happened, right, the finger snap that got rid of half of the universe's inhabitants could in a way be seen as as Thanos intended it to be as a kind of generous, you know, a saving gesture toward the Earth to keep it from becoming overpopulated. Um, But in fact, that population was necessary so that this creature Tiamuk can be born from the Earth. I mean, it doesn't make any sense really to to overlay these two (laughs) worlds on top of each other because there are too many plot holes about like, why didn't the Avengers just team up with these guys to solve everything? Problems.
2: Right. Well, and we eventually find out even that the deviants, the reason the deviants have come back, and this is a little kind of wonky, but the, the reason they've come back is that there were just a bunch of deviants like trapped in the Alaskan ice, um, like in a glacier that they were released both because of global warming and also because there was like an oil drilling crew up there. So the the, the global warming climate change stuff like seems endemic to that setup, but then it doesn't really square with like anything else the movie does.
0: Right. They introduce climate change just to ignore it, which is <laughs> quite an odd thing to do. Right. I mean, and it just seems like if this movie is going to be the
1: introspective new Marvel that, that it seems like Chloe Zhao and Marvel are trying to to create, right, to create a new universe of people who we're going to follow um, with their own standalone movies, that this would be the place to introduce those bigger questions of climate change, etc., cetera. But it's just one of the many places where this movie is, is is muddled. I think it is actually trying to do something different, but there's just there's this lack of tonal control that's never really mastered. I wonder, too, what you guys think of the, the intermittent throughout this movie appearance of real historical events, whether it's, you know, the siege of Tenochtitlan in what's now Mexico uh, or... Um, Hiroshima, you know, the aftermath
0: of the nuclear bomb in Hiroshima.
1: Nadira, do you want to do you want to take those away?
0: <laughs> sure. There's been a lot of discussions about the way historical events are used and utilized in superhero films and While some you can maybe turn a blind eye to, this film is just full of some really cringy moments. Um, One main one, the one that many people are talking about, is the Hiroshima scene where, you know, during the whole sequence where they're getting the gang back together, which, might I say, they use like four different modes of transportation and they only have seven days to do it. And none of that even makes sense. (laughs) But while they're trying to get the gang back together, they check in on Fastos. And he has since given up on humanity, the last that they heard, because he, of course, as we discussed earlier, is the sort of god of technology or technopath, which also includes weapons. And there's a scene where he feels blame for the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And Brian Tyree Henry, who is the Black gay superhero that we are offered for this film is the one who is seemingly responsible for Hiroshima. And although that might not be what the film is intending as he's kneeling on the ground saying, what have I done to the heavens? It reads very, very badly, most because it trivializes the mass tragedy that happened and could in no way even begin to like scrape the depths of the horror that was there but also because it's just a disservice to the character that we're given, who is one of the most diverse characters we're ever given. You know, it's bad on many, many levels, and that's probably the worst example of the way history is used in the film. But then again, they have the... Um, Spanish conquest of Tenochtitlan which is used kind of as their own moral quandary about why they don't you know get involved in human conflicts and wars instead of really I mean I think it's mentioned once that it's a genocide but you know there's not much attention paid to that either most of them kind of just shrug it off as well hey that's what we're here to do and I think the movie does a lot of that and definitely wasn't a fan of those moments
1: yeah it seems like genocide is a backdrop in this movie in a way that is just really really distasteful it's a established early on that the Eternals function by this rule, not unlike the prime directive of the Star Trek universe, right? That they're not supposed to interfere in human affairs, but that means that they get put into one situation after another where their, their moral commitment is just, being, you really have to question exactly why we are supposed to admire these superheroes who seem to be carrying out the blind directive of this, you know, Sky Daddy, the Car- Arishem character, um without really questioning it until really late in the movie.
2: Yeah, they make Brian Tyree Henry's FASTA sort of a cross between like Robert Oppenheimer and Oscar Schindler in this movie where he uh, you know gives humanity technology and thinks they're all progressing and that oops, they used it to like drop a bomb on people. And so he's he's all sort of literally kneeling in the ashes of Hiroshima, you know, saying, like, what have I done? and I I don't agree with the people who say like something like that should sort of categorically never be in a superhero movie because I think for example like the use of Auschwitz in the X-Men movies with you know regard to the character of Magneto who's a Holocaust survivor like I think that actually works pretty well within the sort of obviously mythic universe that we're inhabiting although it's worth noting that that, that sort of that scene sort of takes place like after World War II, it's not like Magneto is like in Auschwitz with his powers and being like, oh no, I can't stop this because reasons. But you know, you run into this problem with these movies where, you know, if you sort of start to scratch the surface of reality and be like, Okay, yes, these all powerful beings who have existed on Earth for seven thousand years all, you know, exist in the universe where like, you know, the Holocaust happened and when uh, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki happened, and then you know, and they could have stopped it, but they didn't because they were told to. And that just kind of opens up a whole thing like, you know, like if Superman exists, like why is there war? Why doesn't he just, you know, fly around and, you know, blow up all the nukes? And the answer is because then you get, you know, Superman 4, which is like the worst Superman movie ever made. So it's just like once you sort of start to peel that onion, you know, unless you're going to go full watchman and basically conclude that the destiny of these superheroes is to end up as sort of like, all-powerful, mostly benevolent dictators, then <laughs> you're sort of screwed, and you really just need to like not, you know, keep the real world at arm's length.
1: Yeah. Speaking of benevolent dictators, another moral queasy spot in this movie to me is the Druid character's situation when he's when he's gathered, you know, in the getting the gang back together segment, which is that Barry Keown's Druid is basically, he's a he's a sort of ruler of his own <laughs> despotic yet peaceful jungle colony. And it seems like for a long period of time, we don't know how long he has brainwashed but sort of kindly brainwashed all of these villagers in an Amazon jungle compound into leading a peaceful life together. So he's kind of conducting this experiment in, you know, um in benevolent dictatorship, I guess. And although he's seen as a little bit of a maverick, it's almost it's almost presented as if that's just sort of an edgy thing to do, you know, to use your superpowers to mind control a bunch of villagers. And I wonder if that bothered you all too. I mean, there's not any there's not any moment where he or anyone else sort of is asked to reconsider that choice
2: I mean, I like the way he played it. like I, i'm I go back to like somebody. Uh, tweeted a picture of Barry Kean in, in um, the Green Knight, and was basically like, "When this guy shows up in your movie, you know you're in trouble." Um, which is sort of just the energy he's like bringing to a lot of things. He just has this sort of like really like creepy vibe to him, and I think that actually enhances the character and like brings something interest to it because he's the one who really seems to consider like, you know what, maybe I should just take over this whole species and like make them do what I want so that they won't kill each other. And that, you know, if you're druid and you can, you know, apparently just control 7 billion minds at the same time, like, well, you know, why not do that? But- you know, eventually the movie just has to have people, like, shooting laser blasts out of their eyes.
1: Yeah, that's the that's the part where I feel like this movie is too willing to gloss over all of what would really make it the most interesting and thorny Marvel movie yet, you know, in order to get to that moment where, you know, it's a, a big battle royale for the finish.
0: Especially considering that the whole motivation behind the Eternals turning on Erisham is to care for humanity. You know, it, it really, when you... Really pick at it doesn't make that much sense.
1: All right. Speaking of battle royales for the finish, I'm going to take a little break before our final battle royale for a word from our sponsor. So let's get into the final unfolding, I guess, what you'd call the last act of, of the Eternals. And Sam, you wanted to start with something. I mean, there's so much going on in so many cities and planets and universes with so many characters that it's sort of hard to track the end of this. But there was something that you wanted to talk about, about Icarus's, the shift in his character toward the end of the movie.
2: Right. I mean, I mentioned, you know, I, I, having sort of charged, you know, Richard Madden and Icarus with being sort of like a total boring drip um, in this movie. He does have a sort of big heel turn. In the last act of the movie, where we eventually find out that Ajak technically was killed by Deviants, but that was only because Icarus like threw her to them. Uh, so Ajax was supposed to be the only one who knew about Ereshkigal's like real grand top secret plan, which is to eventually kind of sacrifice all the people of Earth to give you know birth to this new celestial. But Icarus knew about it as well. And as Ajak was sort of softening on humanity and trying to be like, you know what, maybe we shouldn't like blow up this whole planet, Icarus is sort of faithful to the mission to the extent that he kills. Ajax and then basically, you know, makes it look like the deviants did it in order to throw all the Eternals off the scent because it's getting basically like Earth is near term. Um, and Tiamat is about to be born and he's just sort of like running out the clock until Tiamat starts crowning. So <laughs> that like leads to this big battle on top of a volcano um, and eventually, you know, they're fighting each other while these, you know, giant fingers are sort of like pushing their way up through the surface of the ocean and sending off, you know, tsunamis to to God knows where. So, I mean, that's where like you really get into the sort of hardcore Kirby stuff where you have these sort of, you know, immortal, incredibly powerful beings fighting each other and being dwarfed by like the giant finger of a creature that is coming up out of the ocean behind them, <laughs> so that's that's the sort of like operatic level this is working
0: on. And even during this, they still try to get us to care about the deviants. You know, there's that whole sort of scene where Thena is fighting the deviant, and she's you know. Recovering from Mad Weary, which is also something that we haven't touched on, but is something that is, again, glossed over for this. Film. It's like superhero PTSD, basically, right? Right. Exactly. Um, especially when you realize the truth behind the Eternals, which is that, you know, they have existed and they've done this for millennia, wiping out planets or helping celestials wipe out planets during multiple emergences, Mad Weary is then the sort of confluence of memories where an Eternal or a superhero can't fully forget and starts to remember their past selves, which poses problems in their current mission or current life. So Thena, who's suffering from Mad Weary, you know, is fighting this deviant while everyone else is fighting Icarus and trying to stop the emergence. And it all is sort of one big muddled mess. It really can't let the deviants go. Yeah, Nadira, since since you're mentioning the Thena character, the Angelina
1: Jolie's character, it's kind of almost mental illness or dementia that she's dealing with throughout the movie. I had a couple things I wanted to ask you all about, about those character beats. I mean, as I said earlier, I think Angelina Jolie is really deserved by this movie. It's almost hard to believe that you could have Angelina Jolie fighting CGI monsters <laughs> and have it not be at the least campy fun. And yet there's a kind of a deadness to it in this movie. So there were a couple of character relationships I wanted to hear from from you guys about, because they're somewhat unusual in a Marvel movie. One of them is is the one that you described, Nadira, between Thena and the Don Lee character, Gilgamesh, which is maybe a romantic relationship. There's not really an, any intimation that it is, but it certainly is an intimate kind of friendship where he essentially kind of babysits her, you know, in case she has these sudden mad, weary outbreaks where she starts trying to kill her own colleagues. So I wanted to hear if, if, whether you thought that was well, well developed. And then also, just because it's the first gay love story in any Marvel movie, what you thought of the vision of Fastos, Brian T- Tyree Henry's home life, and you know the vision of his life with a with a mortal man.
0: I guess I'll focus on Brian Tyree Henry's relationship as Fastos first. It. Is the first, right? The first gay relationship that we see. That's in a Marvel more than film. hinted
1: at. I think there might be a moment in one of the Eternals movies where somebody is like met at the airport by their gay partner right. or something, but we don't explore their lives at all.
0: Right. I've I've really liked that relationship. I mean, Brian Terry Henry is just such a good actor, you know. He's so good at making you feel whatever he's supposed to be feeling, and which is when he's with his family, you know, just at home, you know, at peace. He's finding real solace in his family. And they paint this really loving picture of this beautiful relationship. You know, Fastos ends up having a son and they're raising him in Chicago. And, you know, it's just this really nice home life that you never get to see. And he has a lot of jokes about like fixing his son's bike without using (laughs) his powers. Um, And I really, really liked seeing that compared to relationships like Icarus and Cersei who just don't, you know, they don't really give you anything. They don't give you anything at all if you're really asking.
1: Yeah, I agree, Nadir. To the extent that there is emotional juice of the, of any kind in this movie, it's in that relationship or, you know, just the, the Fastos character himself. And, you know, there's a little bit of humor in the, the Kingo story and in his relationship with the character we haven't talked about, um, played by Harish Patel, his sort of his sidekick, who in this kind of fun conceit is trying to shoot a DIY documentary about the, the superheroes. This, of course, makes no logical sense in that they have spent millennia going undercover. So why on earth would they they allow themselves to be publicized in a documentary, but since it seems so homemade that it will never go anywhere anyway, that that makes for some some good comic relief. But I really feel like the only warmth in the movie, even though this also has the first real sex scene in a Marvel movie between Sam's favorite two drips, Icarus and Cersei, the only real emotional warmth for me came from things involving the Fastos character or or Kingos, and that really seems like a shame as well because you know once again you got Angelina Jolie there, <laughs> you know you paid a pretty penny to get her in your movie, like use her,
2: yeah. And she loves, she loves playing mental illness too. Um, but, but for some reason, she, yeah, there's just very little comes of, comes of that in this. I mean, I think, you know, the comic relief, really you're, Stuff you're talking about is sort of de rigueur, you know, in in the Marvel movies. It's part of the DNA what makes them work. I think it is also, um, for me, like pretty clearly the stuff that Chloe Zhao is the worst at and fits like the least well in this. And I feel in a way like they sort of tried to make a Stan Lee movie out of a Jack Kirby story. Uh, like if you read the Eternals comics, like there are no jokes and they're like, they're not funny. They're just about this like big you know, galaxy-spanning sci-fi fantasy saga and introducing these, you know, funny little quippy notes in it, like really, I guess it's, you know part of the formula that what the audience expects, but it just, you know, really lets the air out of the whole thing. I mean, she's very good at, you know, the the domestic scenes with Fastos and his partner that Nadira was talking about. I mean, I, those those are, I think, maybe the best relationship in all like 25 movies that we've seen so far. I mean, they're so much better than like the sort of half-hearted domestic Hawkeye scenes in, in Age of Ultron, which I think is the last time the, this franchise like sort of really tried to pay attention to like how normal people like actually live their lives. But then... You know, the movie kind of requires you to, again, to like forget about all that stuff so that volcanoes can explode.
1: And that tension always exists in Marvel movies, right? There's always going to be that balance between big cosmological sweeping, you know, crawls with crazy mythological character names. And then, oh, wait, suddenly we're sitting around a a control room, you know, trading bantery quips with each other. That tension always exists. But like you say, Sam, Chloe Zhao is just not – she doesn't really have – the stuff to balance it, you know, and, uh, and I don't even mean that as a knock on her as a filmmaker, why should one be able to do something like make a Marvel movie, which is essentially sort of like running a small city, you know, just because you're able to make beautiful, (laughs) intimate little Indies like Nomadland and the writer, it's a completely different skill set. And it's one that I hope that she sticks with. I mean, I've heard some noise now about her maybe making the next Star Wars movie. And I'm sure that would be a, a fun career move for her. But it doesn't seem to me like it's going in the direction of where her talents lie.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think Justin Chang from the LA Times is, you know, one of the best uh, movie critics in, in the country. But I keep going back to what he said in his review. He said he thinks this is the most interesting movie Marvel has ever made. And he hopes that it's the least interesting movie that Chloe ever
1: makes. <laughs> I completely agree with him on the latter. But I can't say that I think it's the most interesting movie Marvel has ever made. Maybe the weirdest, possibly the weirdest. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of Marvel, of course, Marvel has to end their big, you know, giant first Eternals movie with a lot of little Easter eggs and teasers about what's coming next and sort of leave us in a place where we're ready to receive the next offering from our own giant robot god in the sky. Where where does Marvel want to leave its audience at the end of the Eternals?
0: I mean, even that to me is somewhat unclear. I mean, I think the thing that Marvel always wants to leave its audience with is wanting more, right? There's a lot of open questions left at the end of this film. Where does Icarus fly off to after he's defeated? We don't know. Does he commit suicide, sort of? One thing I do have to say about the character of Icarus is, and I think, Dana, you make a good point. That is what it seems like. We're not expressly told exactly what happens to him, but that is what it seems like. But his name isn't necessarily a call back to something as much as it's a prophecy, the way it functions in this film. And I think at every point, I was suspicious of him. You know, he gaslights Cersei. He shows up suspiciously timed with the deviants. And we're kind of supposed to believe, you know, that he's still a good guy, and he's the Eternal that Cersei fell in love with. And we're supposed to be surprised when he turns on his family and the rest of the Eternals. But the entire film to me seemed sort of like Icarus fulfilling this prophecy of his name, as opposed to him having this whole turn in the film. And so, yeah, it would make sense what you say if he flies into the sun at the end, you know, that would kind of follow his trajectory. But again, it's not expressly told. Um, There's also a bit of confusion... Around what happens with the rest of the Eternals. So, some of them go off into space to warn other Eternals that exist about the true nature of their mission. Some of them stay behind. And of those that stay behind, only some of them are then recaptured by Erisham, who kind of gives them this grand warning saying that he's upset that they betrayed him and that their memories will prove as witness to if humans were deserving of their lives and whether they should have been kept alive, I guess, and that he will return back for Judgment Day, which, again, is a little confusing. Yeah, I feel like this movie needs to
1: decide whether Arashem is a good god or a bad god, right? I mean, that's a pretty important question. And it's one that, I mean, in comparison, the, the figure of Thanos in the Avengers series looks... Really morally complex, you know, because even though what he wanted to do was awful, he had a motivation, an explained motivation for doing it, right? That he had these ideas about how there were too many beings in the universe and he had to have the number, whatever. It's absurd and silly, but it is internally consistent, whereas it sort of seems like Arishem is both a godlike figure to people that we're supposed to respect and is also telling them to do things that we're not supposed to respect. And there's, a, there's just a, a sort of a muddle at the end as to why we went through all of that agonizing in the first place.
2: Right. I mean, the idea is that Arisham is sort of like, you know, his eyes on the prize and it's basically like, well, look, you know, these, you know, seven billion humans have to die so that like, you know, umpity billions more, you know, living creatures can be created. But then it's sort of like, well, if then you're then just going to kill those creatures to make room... you know, for more creatures, like after that, like, what is the what's the end game here? Like, you're just sort of perpetuating the cycle of, like, creating creatures so that you can harvest them to create more creatures. Um, <laughs> which actually doesn't seem that moral.
1: Right. Either you believe in utilitarian ethics or you don't, right? And I think that <laughs> conflict was kind of at the heart of the the Thanos struggles, right? I mean, even if he may have motivations that he thinks are good, he's still using transactional utilitarian ethics and we must reject that as humans, right? I mean, those movies at least have that belief and they, they more or less remain consistent to it. Whereas, and maybe this is some of the Jack Kirby cosmological stuff you were talking about, Sam, but it doesn't seem like this movie has a clear grasp, or at least is able to communicate to the viewers a clear grasp of, of what that theological struggle means. Alright, so after the giant fingers have emerged from the ocean and everyone has met their respective fates, which we will not recount all of them now, both because there are 10 and because I don't understand them. Let's get on to um, to the stingers. There's two of them. There's one right before the credits begin. And there's one at the end. I admit that I was so exhausted after two hours and 40 minutes of movie that I only saw the first one and I left somewhere in the midst of, you know, I mean, obviously, 10s of 1000s of people work on a movie like this. So the credits take forever. So you guys can explain to me what happens in the last stinger. But first, let's talk about about the first one, which I was able to see um, here, we get to see a character who's going to be introduced, I think, as a villain um, in one of the upcoming Marvel movies. Sam, do you have any background on on this guy? And, and can you give the big reveal of who plays him?
2: I I don't have a ton of of background on him, um, other than you know I know he's like comes from more recent comics by uh, Jim Starlin, but, um, basically yeah, the Eternals are on there. The Eternals who have not been captured by Arsham are on their uh, ship in space, going to you know rendezvous with whoever in which whatever future Marvel movie, um, and all of a sudden, um, in comes this little sort of you know CGI elf, um voiced by Patton Oswalt who you know gives like some sort of you know introductory spiel um and then introduces uh, Eros played by Harry Styles um <sighs> which is the only reason yes. my 12-year-old daughter wants
0: to see this movie which is the only good reason to see this movie <laughs> <laughs> Yes Yeah
1: I think I think the most emotional reaction that I experienced in the theater when watching this from the audience was you know the Harry Styles reveal
2: Yeah so Eros is Thanos's brother one imagines at some point he may be uh, somewhat upset that his brother has been killed
1: but he's introduced as almost more like a loki style character a trickster sort of right. figure right he doesn't have anything like his brother's kind of somber mean not to mention his size i love imagining their childhood <laughs> pictures side by side like my brother's giant and purple and i can fit in the palm of his hand yeah, they
2: also did not make harry styles look like a big giant purple rock <laughs> not
1: and thank god for that <laughs> All right. Can either of you sub- uh, summarize the final stinger for me, when I was already on my way home to dinner? Uh, yeah,
2: well, we see uh, Kit Harrington's character, um, Dane Whitman, who, if if you know the comics better than I do, frankly, um, you would already have known where this was going. Um, but we see Dane Whitman right in the sort of, you know, post climax of the movie, where Cersei and Dane, her mortal boyfriend, are getting back together. He's like, oh, I need to tell you something really important about my background. And then all of a sudden, like, Arishem appears in the sky and like, zoops her up into the cosmos, and he never gets to say what it is. But if you hang out until the second credit sequence, you see him in his study, sort of pouring over this, basically a sword on his desk that seems to be, you know, infused with some sort of dark energy. If you know the comics, you know that he is, uh, you know, going to be revealed as the Black Knight. And then there is an off-screen voice that calls to him that is not only not identified in the movie, but Marvel's publicist, when I reached out to them to ask who it was, would not tell me, but has since been revealed as... Uh, Nadira, you guessed this correctly. So yes. You want
0: to say uh, Mahersha Ali, who, as we all know, is set to play Blade. All
1: right. Well, I think as I said up top at the beginning of the spoiler that I may be marveled out for the moment. I'm not sure that I'm even going to see and or review the next... Marvel movie. But if it turns out to be one, for example, with Mahershala Ali as Blade, I might make an exception. I think at this point, I'm going to go case by case because this franchise has just (laughs) sucked up enough of my life. (laughs) (laughs) But the next time there is a Marvel movie that sparks my interest, I'm hoping that you guys will come in and spoil it with me again. Absolutely. All right. Thanks to all of you for listening. That's our show for today. Please, if you like this show, subscribe to the Slate Spoiler special podcast feed. And you can also rate us and review us in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like us to spoil in the future or other feedback to share, you can write us at spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today was Cleo Levin, for Sam Adams and Nadira Goff, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.
2: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
1: A laundry. Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh?
2: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. <laughs>